Thank you. Please be seated. The next case on our docket is 22-10171, Johnson versus Tyson Foods, Inc. Mr. Gould, is that correct? Good morning, and may it please the court. Andrew Gould for the Johnson Appellants. In granting Tyson's motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim, the district court committed three fundamental errors. First, it stretched the Federal Meat Inspection Act and the Defense Production Act beyond any plausible interpretation in incorrectly holding that those acts preempted the plaintiff's workplace safety tort claims. Second, the court wrongly applied a heightened pleading standard to the Pandemic Liability Protection Act when under the ordinary Twombly-Iqbal standard, plaintiff's complaint sufficiently stated a plausible, non-speculative claim even under the PLPA. And third, even were it otherwise, the court abused its discretion in denying plaintiffs even a single opportunity to amend their complaint, which was originally filed in state, not federal court. This court should correct these fundamental errors, and it should reverse. I'm going to begin with preemption under the FMIA, but I'm happy to address the issues in any order that the court may like. The district court's ruling under the FMIA was unprecedented, and it was wrong. It was unprecedented because before this case, as well as the now vacated Fields and Wazell <coughs> opinions and the Garcia opinion from the district court, which is on appeal to this court, no district court had ever held that the FMIA preempts what the OSHA Act expressly says it does not preempt, such as these workplace safety tort claims. Preemption analysis, as the Supreme Court has said time and again, turns on congressional purpose. Did Congress intend to displace the state law requirement at issue? How do we find congressional purpose? Well, when we're talking about express preemption, we look primarily to the statutory text and framework. In looking at the statutory text and framework of the FMIA, it is apparent that as the title denotes the Federal Meat Inspection Act, it is an act about food safety, not worker safety. Before I discuss Section 678, which is the preemption provision, what's helpful about this statute is that there's a introductory section, Section 602, which is a congressional statement of findings. That section states Congress's purpose. It's not a stray legislative statement. It is Congress's enacted words. And what does Congress say? They, tell, they talk about the problem they're getting at, right, which is adulterated meat and unwholesome meat and meat that is mislabeled, mismarked, and how it injures consumers as well as how it injures other meat processors, right, because you've got two meat processors playing by a different set of rules. And so what does the final sentence of Section 602 say? It says that why regulation is appropriate by the Secretary of Agriculture. And it says it's to effectively regulate such commerce and to protect the health and welfare of consumers. There is no mention or indication in Section 602 about anything that has to do with worker safety. So then when you get to Section 678, which is the preemption provision, it states that requirements within the scope of this chapter, that is the FMIA, that are different from or in addition to, that's what's preempted. The key phrase here is within the scope of this chapter, worker safety does not fall within the scope of the FMIA. The FSIS has specifically said that it does not have the authority to exclusively regulate worker safety. 
that falls to OSHA under the OSHA Act. OSHA has historically regulated not just workplaces generally, but meatpacking and poultry processing plants. Indeed, they've done so with respect to infectious diseases. We've cited in our brief where they even talk about seasonal diseases um, and infectious diseases like pandemic flu. OSHA is the one that is the agency that regulates this historically. And it was regulating it during COVID specifically. The guidance that came out to meatpacking plants like Tyson, that came from CDC and OSHA, not from the FSIS. And were there any doubt when Secretary Perdue sent his letter to stakeholders, including Tyson, following the issuance of the April 28th executive order. In that letter, he encouraged plants to follow the CDC and OSHA guidance. Secretary Perdue did not say, oh, and by the way, follow it right now, but we've got FSIS is coming out with some guidance later that it will more specifically regulate you. It was just to CDC and OSHA because, again, that is what has historically regulated this issue. The district court here relied on two regulations in particular for the proposition that FSIS could regulate worker safety, the employee hygiene regulation and the sanitation uh, regulation. I'd encourage the court to read those regulations. When you do so, you'll look at each paragraph and it says what it's getting at, to prevent the adulteration of meat and insanitary conditions. It is focused on food safety and how that will affect consumers, not workers. Preemption under the Defense Production Act is a much more simple issue after this court's opinion in Glenn. Tyson's argument, and this is at response page, uh, response page three, the DP- the key case we need to, this key issue we need to decide, the PLPA? It's one of the issues, so I- Well, I mean, if we agree with Tyson on that, isn't that the issue? So, yes and I'm no. I'm not saying we will, so I'm I, saying if we do. Yes and no. So, it's the issue, so I agree, with the, I agree with your honor that if you were to hold that we didn't sufficiently state a claim under the PLPA, and this is key, and the court did not abuse its discretion in, in granting leave to amend, then it doesn't matter, right? Then it doesn't matter whether or not it's preempted. We argue again, and, and let me just jump right to the, the PLPA based on your question. Again, our argument is that twofold. One, it's that we did sufficiently state a claim. And second, even were it otherwise, then the court didn't abuse its discretion, or excuse me, the court did abuse its discretion in denying leave to amend. And of course, as your honor is aware, futility is one of the reasons why a court wouldn't abuse its discretion. So if the claim is clearly preempted, then it would be futile. Um, turning to the PLPA, the PLPA modifies common law negligence in two ways, through the knowing exposure and the causation requirements. But critically, the PLPA does not impose a heightened pleading standard. Well, the Texas statutes can't tell us what the pleading standards are unless they're substantive. So on procedural pleading standards, that's still federal. And your argument is, well, we were in state court, we came, we weren't allowed to amend, but we have a case, Scott versus U.S. Bank National Association, which makes clear that just um, saying I want to amend and not in any way saying what you would add that would matter, in other words, either attaching the amended complaint or at least walking through it means it's not an abuse of discretion to deny the amendment. How do you address that? Sure. So jumping directly to leave to amend, I address it in a few ways. I think there are a few unique factors that are at play here. First, 
is that we are moving from state to federal court with a different pleading standard. Texas's fair notice pleading is different from pleading under Twombly and Iqbal. This court recognized as much. Right, but it still doesn't prevent you. I understand why it might mean that your pleading looks different, okay? I was a state district judge in Texas. I'm well aware of what those things look like. But you come to federal court and now you say, well, now I want to amend, but you won't say, and here's the amendment or here's the specific paragraphs I would add to this section or whatever that gives the judge something to look at to say, would it be futile? Would it be this? Would it be that? Would it matter? Would that amendment change my decision? You didn't do that, right? What we said, Your Honor, is that we would plead additional facts, and so I was talking about the kind of the unique factors that were coming into place. Yeah, but you so, didn't say uh, what the facts were, did you? We, we did not identify the additional facts, but I think what's important to recognize is we pleaded this four weeks after the enactment of the PLPA. So this is not, for example, some, let's say, a Title VII complaint, right, where that's been on the books for 50 years that has had the benefit of judicial construction at the time. This is a new statute, and so when we're talking about additional facts there, we're implicitly referencing that if, if what no, we're I saying... I understand if there was some new rule that came out after you had already filed the pleading that you could say, well, we'll address that. But the core of the complaint still needs to be more than well, I was on the road in New Orleans, and so were you, so my accident must have been your fault. You go, wait a minute, you have to plead that I'm the one who ran the red light, I'm the one who was near, I mean, it's not just enough to say we were both on the road in New Orleans and I got injured, so that means it's your fault because you were also on the road. There still has to be a connection, and that's what I'm just wondering about here, where, yes, I mean, a lot of people are getting COVID all over the place, and so the, quest so the question is, where is the connection that some wrong of Tyson is what led to your people's COVID? If we are talking specifically about the complaint that was filed in state court, if you look at page ROA 36 and 37, you'll see set forth these in these two pages paragraphs as to the various things that Tyson knew about. Specifically, it, that, that it knew that COVID was spreading in its plan, in this respect, that it, people were showing symptoms of COVID or they were infected with COVID. We pleaded that Tyson failed to provide PPE, that Tyson uh, failed to implement social distancing uh, guidance or any of the, the CDC and OSHA guidance. So we. I want to stop and ask you some specific factual questions about that. Um, I think everybody agrees that. Early on, there was an executive order that said you should follow the CDC and OSHA-specific guidelines for the meat and poultry processing industry. All right, at the point in time when your plaintiffs got sick, when was that? When did they get sick? So they, uh, we didn't plead the exact date that they got sick, and I think that was one of the things that the district court here stated in its opinion is that one of the things we failed to allege is the exact All right, let's get right to the point. What PP got, PPE guidelines were in CDC, OSHA guidelines were in effect about masks, distancing, what kind of masks, all of that when your plaintiffs got sick? The, the interim guidance from the CDC and OSHA was in effect at that time as well as just the general knowledge. What did they require specifically about what kind of masks, social distancing, etc. I'm with, sorry. Regarding to the meat and poultry processing industries. I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear your question. What kind of masks? social distancing, what were the specifics of the OSHA and CDC guidelines at the time your plaintiffs got sick? It was- As applied to these industries. Right, as applied to these industries, it would be the document uh, that of the C the interim guidance that was issued um, around the, in the April, April 2020 timeframe that laid out exactly what those specifics- and, and What specifically did Tyson fail to do how did it fail to comply with those guidelines? Well, so it, that they, I mean, they failed to provide masks. What kind of masks were required specifically and, and what, who did they fail, give us specifics that you can say, yes, they failed to give X, X kind of mask on X date. We got sick because of it. Well, I don't think they, I mean, they failed to provide any type of masks whatsoever, but respectfully, 
I don't think that we were required at the pleading stage to prove. Let's assume you were. For my purposes, let's assume you were. What kind of masks would they provide, required to provide? How did they, how did they fail to meet CDC guidelines and OSHA guidelines specifically? So I think at, at, at the time that this was your, issued. Your plaintiffs got sick. At the time that my plaintiffs got sick, I don't necessarily, I don't believe, and I'd have to look back at the CDC and OSHA guidance, I don't necessarily believe it was necessarily, say, N95 masks that were, you know, in short supply at this time, but it was talking about surgical masks, just the regular type of mask. I mean, the staff report. There was a period where they were basically saying, don't wear a mask unless you're like a nurse in a hospital. And that's what, that was a, an issue because there was a period of time that they thought you were getting it from your finger. So if I touch this and somebody with COVID had touched it, now I'm going to get it. And they were telling people, you don't need to wear a mask and whatever, whatever. And then they flipped that and said, well, I mean, it's still important to keep your hands clean, but start wearing a mask. But there was the problem of the limited amount of masks that were out there. And so I think what Chief Judge Richmond is addressing is the fact that things were evolving. So where are we on this road? And, and respectfully, Your Honors, what I would say is that's the merits question. No. That I'm, let's just assume we disagree about the pleading requirements. I want to know, can you, what can you plead specifically about CDC and OSHA violations at the time your plaintiffs got sick? What can you plead? Yes, we can plead that they weren't implementing uh, proper social distancing guidelines, that they were allowing people who were showing symptoms of COVID-19 to come into work, that they were allowing people, uh, they had a work while sick policy, that's our allegations, that they weren't providing any type of masks whatsoever. Those are the things we, we could have pleaded. And at, with respect to if whether what Tyson did was enough given what was going on at the very beginning of the pandemic, that's a merits question that's for a jury to decide. No, we need to know what your allegations are. Can you state a plausible claim? Yes. And, that, and we need to know specifics. I mean, what, what did the CDC guidelines say about masks, about social distancing, about not coming to work? I mean, you're saying Tyson affirmatively told sick people to come to work, and that's what your people were next to sick people. Is that is that what you? One, that's one of our allegations. Is that they had a work while sick policy. But you didn't allege that your people were next to those sick people. I mean, the Tyson um, Meat Bank is a you know meat place is huge, and so somebody you know way over somewhere else could have been the one who was sick. And this person over here, that isn't why they got it. In fact, they went home and their spouse had it, and that's how they got it. So the reality is. Just because someone somewhere in this courthouse, for example, has it doesn't mean we're all going to get it, even assuming arguendo we were back in the pre-vaccine and all of that stage. Yes, I, I don't disagree with that. But again, I think for purposes of pleading, even under the PLPA, what we did was enough. And I assume we disagree with you. I'm getting at, should we give you another chance? So can you tell me? If you got another chance, what you could plead exactly? Yes, just to reiterate. So we would, what we would plead is that Tyson failed to provide masks, not just necessarily N95, but they, that they didn't provide masks of any kind, that they failed to implement proper social distancing guidelines, that they had, that they had this work while sick policy, that they knew again, that their employees were coming into work sick um, I'm sure we would be pleading things in line with the recent congressional staff report that came out uh, this past year that focused specifically on failures that happened at the Amarillo plant, the one that we're talking about right here. So we can, Chief Judge Richmond, we can plead, you know, a more fulsome complaint. And again, with respect to... When did your plaintiffs get sick? I'm sorry? When did your plaintiffs get sick? They got, uh, they got sick at the, I believe it was around, I believe these were around April of 2020 or it, it could have been May. I'm, I'm not, I'd have to look back at our, at our records and I'm happy to provide that. But again, we weren't required to plead exactly when. I'm just saying if we disagree with you, I want to know what the facts are. I just don't want to send this back on a a goose, wild goose chase. And, it, and, and respectfully, I don't think it is a wild goose chase. Again, for, for purposes of pleading under Twombly and Iqbal, is a plausible claim. I'm just saying, assuming arguendo, we do not agree with you, I just want to know what facts you can 
represented this court that you can will plead that and i would just go back to what i said previously which is that tyson was failing to provide massive work failing to implement any social distancing guidelines that they had a work while sick policy that they knew that their employees were coming into work showing symptoms of covid and some that were actually infected with covid so things like this we we would be we would replete this if you had all the things that tyson didn't do or whatever whatever what additional facts could you plead that would connect some of all of that to your particular plaintiffs so uh judge stewart the causation requirement i think this gets into the reliable scientific evidence requirement we don't view it as the case that under the plpa that we are required to come forth affirmatively with that reliable scientific evidence in our pleading we absolutely have to provide it for purposes of establishing liability but for purposes of pleading we don't have to do it i mean already in our complaint right now we have said that their unsafe work conditions were the cause of them contracting COVID-19. There's no specifics at all on that. I'm not talking about some doctor, but just, you know, if I'm sitting next to someone who has it, that is different from someone, you know, several blocks away having it. Not to say I can't get it and not know how I get that, but I think that's the question. It's not so much a doctor saying, oh, yes, it was because you sat next to Jane that you got it. It's you need to say you sat next to Jane. Right, and, and it, to the extent that we have to plead, to the extent we are allowed to plead with more particularity, I believe that we can do so. Again, I, but part of this, I, what I hear, it respectfully- Even your brief hasn't said that your people sat next to Jane, and I'm just putting that in quotes, obviously. Jane being the person who has it. Well, sure, sure. I, I understand, uh, Judge Haynes. I, I don't necessarily think that we have to plead it with that specificity, right? That we, they were. <laughs> we're I'm telling you one more time. Just assume for the purpose of argument that we disagree with that. Let go of that. Can you say, will you people be able to say, no one in my family had it when I got it? I hadn't been around anybody else that had it, but I sat, I was near at work with someone who had it or had symptoms. I mean, I, what so, can and can't you plead? We're trying to probe the factual record here. I, I understand. Say, that you say you can or cannot make. So, so as to the specific question as to whether or not it possibly came from a family member or somebody else, uh, based on my knowledge of the case, I can't. I don't want to stand up here and make a representation as to whether we can or cannot. I mean, certainly, if that was the guidance that this court gave as to you are required to do, if you can't, if you can't show that, or excuse me, if you have to conclusively prove that it was absolutely coming from the plant and nothing else, um, I think we would have to we would have to look at that for purposes of pleading. Again, I think for purposes of the cause and fact requirement. Again, even if we were to replead right now based on this record, we could do so. And again, we could plead that scientific evidence would show that their failures were the cause in fact of COVID-19, of them contracting COVID-19. I thank the court for its additional time. Thank you. Good morning, your honors, and may it please the court. Paul Clement for the appellees. Judge Haynes, you said that the PLPA, the Pandemic Liability Protection Act, is the issue in this case, and I agree with that. I mean, I think I want to say some things about the FMIA preemption as well, but I'll start with the issue in the case. Um, I'll start with just the title of the statute for a second, which is, it is not a statute about pleading or venue. It is the Pandemic Liability Protection Act. It is clearly an act that is designed to limit exposure to defendants in cases just like this, and it clearly imposes substantive requirements. My friend said, I think in passing, that it codifies negligence law in this area. He must have misspoke because the statute specifically limits liability to two specific kinds of knowing uh, violations. So this is not a negligence statute. It's not a gross negligence statute, which are the only things that were pled in the complaint in this case. It is, as, it is about knowing violations, and it requires allegations at the pleading stage of cause in fact. And as some of the questions I think explored... I mean, if, if somebody called up and said, um, 
Tyson, I've been tested positive for COVID, so I need to stay home. They go, oh, no, 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 you're coming in. Wouldn't that be a problem? Well, it would certainly be a problem, Your Honor. It wouldn't be. Why isn't that? Where does be, that fit? And isn't that a knowing exposure then to whoever that person is around? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know that that happened. There's nothing like that alleged oh, in this they complaint. They allege that people who were sick were supposed to still come in. They allege that in very vague terms. There's no specific allegation that, that anything as specific as what you talked about um, happened. There's, as you also indicated, there's nothing that ties that to any of the injuries of the plaintiffs in this case. There's just nothing that I think is remotely sufficient under the PLPA. And then... And I do want to understand, at these meat packing plants, they do wear gloves. They do wear gloves. And so back in the early days of the COVID, that was kind of the key thing, the gloves and the, you know, your fingers. And if I touched you and I had it, then that's how you would get it, as opposed to me breathing on you or something like that. I, that, it, particularly if that's the time frame, that early COVID period, because the government, the, the United States didn't feel like we had a problem with COVID until March of 2020. So if we're talking April 2020, it's very early. And that early day was gloves and, you know, washing your hands and all of that. Not to say that masks couldn't help, but they were kind of pulling back on masks because they were so hard to get and they were just wanting to make sure the hospitals had them. No, that, that's right, Your Honor. And that's why, I mean, I, I, you know, I'd like to stay for the most part on the PLPA issue, but that's why I think on the FMIA preemption, my friends on the other side are just wrong to draw this sort of false dichotomy between worker safety, safety and sort of food safety, because particularly in those op opening days of the pandemic, there was no sense that you couldn't get, you couldn't transmit a disease from a person to a meat product. You didn't know if you were getting it from the surfaces or whether it was respiratory. And all of that is, is, is true, not just of COVID, but of infectious diseases in general. And that's why there's a specific regulation promulgated by the FSIS, and this is 9 CFR 416.5, that is all about worker hygiene. It comes in a part that is all about workplace sanitation. And all of that, it's not just something that FSIS could regulate, but it's something that they in fact do regulate. And I'll join my, my, my colleague on the other side to invite you to read that regulation in 416.5C in particular, which specifically directs an employer like Tyson that if they have a worker with an infectious disease, they, they are not allowed to allow them to come to work. They're not supposed to. So if the specific allegation you were talking about before that's not in the complaint were levied, that would be a violation that Tyson not only committed a tort under Texas law, but frankly, it would be a violation that they didn't fully comply with 416.5C, and that's a sure sign that we are within the preemptive scope of the, F, the, the Federal Meat Inspection Act. But let me, let me, I'm happy to get back to that at the end if I may, but, but I'd like to talk just a little bit more about the PLPA, because I do think that it is very clear that given what that statute requires substantively, that the allegations of this complaint are completely deficient. Okay, but what about their argument that, heck, we should have been able to amend because we were sitting in Texas state court, and that's a different place from Texas federal court? Well, I'd, I'd want to go right to that because because I think that's where the, the sort of timeline and the dynamic of this are quite helpful. And the first starting point is even in Texas court, they filed this, this complaint something like four weeks or whatever it was after the PLPA was passed. So this is unlike some of the other cases that Judge Kaczmarek had before him where the original complaint was filed in Texas before the act passed. In those cases, the Wazell case, which involved Tyson, and the uh, Garcia case, which involved a different defendant, Judge Kaczmarek allowed leave to amend because thought it was, you know, they needed to have a chance to plead in light of the new statute. It happened that the Wazell and Garcia plaintiffs were represented by the same set of plaintiffs' lawyers. And one of the things that Judge Kaczmarek said in sort of dismissing but granting them leave to, to amend is, I need some dates. Like the way the statute works, I need some dates. Um, they did file a amended complaint, but they didn't give him any dates. And then he dismissed those two cases, Wazell and Garcia, uh, based on the amended complaint with prejudice the second time around. 
all of that happened before he issued his opinion here dismissing without with dismissing with prejudice and so while it's true that my friends on the other side had an interval after the case was removed to federal court to plead to replayed on their own motion even before we met a you know narrow window a couple of weeks before we filed our motion to dismiss all into the period until there the motion to dismiss with prejudice was entered which is like a period of four or five months when there are all these indications from judge because merrick in these other cases that he needs some dates they had that entire period to replete and at no point did they file an amended complaint or a motion to file an amended complaint or provide any specifications and so what they provided is they provided that one paragraph argument in their opposition to the motion to dismiss which is at the record of ROA 130 and it is as boilerplate and as bare bones as you can get they asked for the opportunity to amend their petition to add any additional fact the courts finds necessary to avoid dismissal of any of their claims now this court has confronted requests to replete in that sort of bare bones just you know please let me you know fix any deficiency you might find with my complaint this court has confronted those kind of bare bones efforts on multiple occasions and on multiple occasions this court has held that it is not an abuse of discretion to not give leave to amend under those circumstances where no specifications are provided whatsoever and the your honor judge Haynes you already referred to the Scott case there's the Benfield case that we cite in our briefs we came across two more recent cases there's the Aryan against sewage and water district of New Orleans case which is 29 F 4th 226 232 there's the anyone against Bailey case 860 F 3rd 287 294 those are all Fifth Circuit cases they are can you give us the most recent authority on what they've said about opportunity to I can't your honor I don't know but I'm not aware of any case by the Supreme Court that would counteract these these precedents and the most recent one from this court is earlier this year so I mean I think these are the governing law for purposes of this case that that all you need is if you're a district court judge is if you if all you're confronted with is nothing specific but this kind of boilerplate request it is not in any respects an abuse of discretion to deny leave to file and then I think if you put it in the context I mean you know it's an unusual context to have essentially two other cases with the same set of plaintiffs lawyers before a single judge but I think particularly in the context where in those other cases he made clear to the plaintiffs lawyers I need dates and he didn't get any dates I think you know I don't think you need to take that into account but if you're trying to you know answer the ultimate question did judge Kaczmarek abuse his discretion by not giving them leave to put the plea that in Texas State Court while they don't at least in my day I don't know if they've changed that and recently but they didn't have a motion to dismiss a pure motion to dismiss so it's a little bit of a different world but most critically is you can pretty much amend up until close to trial so you know without permission absent some court order changing that so I think that's a difference but the notion that you don't have to say any facts in state court is not in my experience true you do need to lay out what the facts are and I kind of think with COVID because we had this roadway that really altered and even now you know we've got these variants and we've got this and we've got that so things are going to over time we keep getting different information from the CDC and so on and so forth so I do think the time is more relevant here than it might be just in your typical what day did you run the red light and hit me probably doesn't really matter as long as you know it was within the statute of limitations that's absolutely correct and the district court judge here actually you know dismissed this complaint for failure to allege causation even apart from the PLPA kind of to your point that I think even in sort of you know the Texas State Court you would expect there to at least be the date of the injury the date of the exposure and then that becomes absolutely indispensable after the PLPA because the PLPA you know asks the plaintiff to essentially show that there was a knowing disregard of guidance on that was at issued on the date of the exposure 
and to be clear about this i've learned more about the date of the explosion this exposure listening to the first half of this argument than i did from anything that's been filed in this case in the lower court or in this case now i infer from i mean you know first of all the date is absolutely critical my friend at one point said well this was after the c d c guidance which the c d c osha guidance which came in an april twenty sixth two thousand twenty two he later said well it was at least sometime prior to i guess sorry 2020 he then later said well it's sometime in april but of course if it's the 25th or the 24th they frankly would have a weaker case because at that point things are so unsure and so unclear that somebody like tyson has nothing as clear as the guidance they get on the 26th let me just ask you something in your brief on page 39 you're talking about um a letter that the secretary sent or letters Right. Pursuant to Executive Order 13917, which, and you quote, that Tyson should um, effectively immediately utilize the guidance issued by the CDC and OSHA specific to the meat and poultry processing industry to safeguard the health, et cetera. What were the CDC guidelines and OSHA at that point in time regarding face masks, social distancing, whatever, regarding the uh, meat and poultry, poultry processing industry? So they were set forth in a specific guidance. There's a part of that that my friend quotes, you know, sort of shows you a picture of in his reply brief. Um, but, the, but the guidance was at that point finally quite specific. It was, you know, you were supposed to use masks at that point. There were specific ways of trying to order the meat packing lines um, to sort of put people so that they weren't directly facing each other and there are various illustrations of all of that. And I, I think, you know, that's why th this would be a different case if there's an allegation that after that letter from the Secretary of Agriculture that you didn't do the specific things that you were told to do. That's the kind of thing that starts to at least begin to satisfy the first part of the uh, requir pleading requirements under the PLPA. Do you know what kind of masks were required under, at that point in time for these workers? I don't know the specifics on that. I'm not sure the guidance was that as specific as to sort of, you know, N95 or the, the like. At the point this guidance is coming, there is still, you know, we're still at a point where masks are in short supply. So I, I, my, my recollection um, is that the, the guidance was a little more generic than a specific kind of mask. Um, and, uh, but, but, but again, that, that- That's all important, right? We need to know. Well, we would need to know to be able to sort of defend ourselves. We would need to, they, that's all stuff that should have been in the, the complaint with respect. And again, I think then it comes down to the, the, the motion, you know, whether, whether they needed to have more opportunity to amend. And with respect, I think that they've never, I mean, even today at the podium, um, I mean, they've, they've been, you know, admirably constrained in not telling you things that they can't, you know, say for sure, but they've been pretty vague about the dates of the exposure and the like. And it's, with all due respect, I think it's just too late in this case for them to now be telling us, well, it was May or it was April 27th, but it was not April 24th and all of the like. I mean, they, 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 there was certainly no question before the district court, they were being told by the district court in his opinions, by Tyson in their motion to dismiss, you need to give us dates. And they didn't give us dates. They gave us this bare bones. Easy enough to get. That's not something you need a doctor for, and it's not something you need discovery for. Your own client should be able to say. Because if they don't know when they got it and they never experienced any symptoms, then I don't really know why they're necessarily suing. So they obviously feel that they were adversely affected. They should know when. Sure, and the question. When they started to feel it. And, and, and the question of the dates was squarely put before them in the district court. And I don't, you know, I, I could speculate as to why they didn't ever come up with those dates. I don't know if it's because they didn't know those dates. I don't know if because the dates weren't particularly helpful. Again, you know, it, it's a different case if in the very first days of the pandemic, there was no guidance. It was kind of chaos. It's much, much harder to impose liability there if you're talking about somebody who didn't get it until late May or June or something like that. Well, then you're talking about a situation where there was firmer guidance um, that, that, that somebody like Tyson could have followed. And so I, I, the, the issue of the dates was squarely presented in the district court. And the district court didn't get any dates. And all he got was this bare bones, 
we'd love to amend once you tell us what the deficiencies are and that's exactly what this court has said is insufficient if i could just go to the f m i a preemption issue for a moment because i do think that that if this court were to both hold that the p l p a requires a greater pleading than was pled in the original complaint and agree that there was no abuse of discretion in not giving leave to amend that would be sufficient to decide this case but if the court is not going to do one of those two things or otherwise would go further to address the f m i a preemption issue i think that the f m i a preemption issue is one that the district court clearly got right and would provide an alternative basis to affirm how do you i know you said the glenn case was just about federal officer removal jurisdiction and all that kind of stuff but how do you sync that up with your arguments on f m i a the glenn case so yes so so judge means i don't think glenn hurts us at all on the f m i a preemption issue i mean i think that the glenn case to be sure makes our d p a defense production act preemption issue harder but it doesn't i think really affect the f m i a analysis at all that you know there's a four factor test for federal office to removal the third factor of the test is whether or not you have a colorable federal defense that was debated in the 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 pleadings but in the in the briefs to the glenn panel but glenn panel didn't reach that issue at all they just decided not acting under that's the end of it so i think you're really drawing on a clear slate when it comes to f m i a preemption course the starting place for deciding that would be the supreme court's decision in the harris case and the harris in describing the f m i a preemption clause there and in holding that there was preemption there the supreme court said that the clause sweeps broadly and with respect my friend wants to kind of talk all the time about osha but i think the place to start in a case about f m i a preemption is with the text of the f m i a express preemption clause that section six seventy eight provision and you look at that clause and you can see why the supreme court said it sweeps broadly because with respect to the premises facilities and operations of meat processing facilities if it's within the scope of the f m i a then the states are out of it and the state law is preempted and so the question in this case really comes down there's no question we're talking about facilities premises and operations of a meat packing plant so the real question comes down to is this within the scope of the f m i a and what's the this so my friends want to tell you well it's it's you know it's workplace safety but no it's not workplace safety the issue is employee hygiene and the sanitary conditions of the workplace and that is squarely within the f s i s and the f m i a and you know that because there is a regulation directly on point that i've talked about that's the four sixteen point five regulation but i think it's important to recognize that in real time my client has recognized this it's not like we've never been sued for a slip and fall in a meat packing operation and we didn't we haven't previously invoked the f m i a preemption provision in those kind of cases there's a difference between sort of general workplace safety concerns and something that is specific to employee hygiene and the sanitation of the workplace and that's the squarely what this case is about and i know it was dealing with the dpa and i know it remanded on the federal question question but i just am wondering if the kind of the core of it has any impact here no i don't i don't think it does i mean i really i was very specific i think it was very specific and you know i want to be as candid as i can that i you know it was not a helpful event for us on our dpa preemption argument but i really do believe it just did not influence the fmia preemption argument at all it's a there's a cert petition in the supreme court yeah there is a cert petition but but you know having just looked at the reply brief in a companion cert petition from the a circuit case there's it it's not about the fmia it it really isn't and it, and that issue does stand alone thank you your honors just a few brief points in rebuttal I was actually going to begin with this is the one thing I'm willing to concede up here which is I agree with my friend that Glenn is specifically about the DPA it's only about the DPA had they gone not not as to the FMIA had the Glenn court gone into the colorable federal defense we we us 
you know, skirmished over that, but it doesn't touch that. So I, I agree with that. Um, on preemption, I, I disagree that he said that there's a, my friend says there's, we're drawing a false dichotomy between worker safety and food safety. Again, we're not drawing that false dichotomy. The preemption clause itself says, does it fall within the scope of the chapter? And so when you read the Harris case, which I agree with my friend is the key case on this, I searched last night just to see how many times did they mention the, the word scope, just talking about the scope of the act, and it's over, uh, it's no less than 10 times. And there in Harris, it was because the specific regulation at issue fell, as the court said, within the very heart of the FMIA, it was about uh, the euthanasia of non-ambulatory swine. So uh, worker safety, even if a regulation can incidentally affect worker safety, that doesn't mean that it falls within the scope of the chapter. Turning to leave to amend and what I think has been the most questions I've received and, and that this court is interested in, my friend is right. My firm represented the plaintiffs in Wazell and in Garcia before Judge Kazmierich. A couple points. I just respectfully, I disagree with Judge Kazmierich, um, as the court is now well aware that we need, we were required to plead the dates. But here's, I think, the bigger point. If Judge Kazmierich was penalizing these the plaintiffs in this case for what we failed to do in other cases, that's in fact, it's kind of like an issue preclusion, right? It's basically saying, well, you could have done, you could have amended in the, these other cases involving these different parties. Well, I think he was just trying to say you were well aware of some of the concerns. It wasn't like you walked in and said, what? I have to do this? You know, that you were aware of that. I think that's all I was trying to say. I don't think that whether you did something in another case is determinative of this one. I, I would hope that's not the case. No, but you, the question is, I mean, even standing here today, you still don't seem to know when your clients got sick. That just seems odd to me. I would have thought it, the day that I met with the clients and was walking through their facts, I would have that on my notes. Now, it's been a while since I've had clients, I agree, but that's my memory of it. Yes, and, and, I, don't want to and I, I don't want to stand up here and make a representation that I can't back up. And so what I will say, again, is that I think if we are told, for example, that you are required to plead the dates, we're going to have to go back and apparently plead the dates. Um, and I'm going to have to talk with our trial counsel to specifically do that. We disagree that it was required. That you, you know, under that Scott case, among others, you need to do more than just say, hey, if you want to know more, I'm happy to amend and tell you about it. That isn't enough. You need a motion to amend, but it needs to be more than that. It needs to say, we can add the following facts, or here is our motion to amend. Now that we understand the problem, we've seen the motion to dismiss, here's our motion to amend, here's an attached new complaint, etc. That's when it kind of becomes something that there's an abuse of discretion in ignoring all that, unless, you know, futility and all that. And, and, and again, I think, respectfully, what draw, what distinguishes this case from those cases is, again, it's the, diff, it's the removal from state to federal court, as well as, frankly, the novelty of the PLPA. Okay, the well, I'm just trying to get the timeline here. The case was removed, what, several months later, a motion to dismiss was filed? I think uh, um, pretty quickly uh, thereafter. At what point, if any, did the district court say, if you can plead X, Y, and Z, I wouldn't dismiss? Not, never in this case, Your Honor. In, in your case, you never had an opportunity to say, if you need dates, we'll provide them? Not, not, in, the, not in this particular case. No, we never got that opportunity. So there, was there an oral hearing on the motion to dismiss? No, I don't, no, there was no oral hearing on the motion to dismiss. Was there a briefing back and forth about what was required? And you also, we don't have to plead dates, or? I'm, I'm, um, there was briefing, obviously, on the motion to dismiss and whether or not we sufficiently stated a claim um, under the PLPA. Was One, the argument made, you do have to provide dates, and you said, no, we don't? Yeah, that's correct. The, the argument was made you both. You stood on your argument, we don't have to provide dates, not but alternative, we can provide dates. We did not, no. So we did not say in our, uh, in our alternative request for leave to amend, we did not say we can provide dates. We did, as, as my friend says, we did just say we would plead additional facts. Uh, but we didn't, but we were never given the opportunity, again, to amend, unlike those, unlike the other cases in which, yes, the court did grant leave to amend, and then it dismissed it for futility. That was because the PLPA had just come out, had come out 
while you guys were already in court? I don't think, no. So in the other cases, the PLPA had not come out. My friend said, I just want to be clear, I didn't say that the PLPA codifies common law negligence. I said it modifies common law negligence. But I don't think it really matters when the PLPA comes out because under that argument, what that means is that a plaintiff, if a law is in existence on the books at the time, then you're basically saying, well, plaintiff, you have to plead in compliance with that law. I'm not agreeing with any sort of argument, which I don't think your opponent is making, that you can never amend. What I'm having trouble with is the notion that the district court has to be the one to tell you what to put in your complaint. That's not my experience. My experience is you need to put that in your complaint. And when the other side has moved to dismiss based in part on errors or problems or lack in your complaint or petition in the state court, then that's when you need to move and you need to say, okay, now that I'm in federal court, here's my new complaint that's much more detailed. And I don't mean to be misconstrued on this, Judge Haynes. I'm not saying that Judge Kaczmarek was required to include a step-by-step guide as to how we were required to plead under the PLPA. What I am saying is like any good attorneys, we would have looked at the opinion that said here are the failings and we could have amended based on that. But I'm not trying to suggest that he was required to explicitly outline what it was that we were required to do. Tell me in one sentence, if we were to say there was an abuse of discretion to not allow you to amend, tell me in one sentence, what is it would be in the amendment? Again, I think it would just, it would be more specifically as to what masks. What Tyson failed to do. Excuse me? It would be more specifics about what Tyson failed to do. Exactly. About what Tyson failed to do, what their knowledge was, and based on the court's questions, it would also be about what they knew about in terms of transmission within the Amarillo plant at the time. I mean, as the congressional staff report outlines, almost 50% of Tyson workers at that plant were getting COVID there. The city of Amarillo even highlighted this fact. So, again, we would be able to plead additional facts both as to the knowing exposure and the causation elements. I'm not here saying it makes it an easy case, right, that if it goes back and it goes through discovery that we have an easy case. I'm not at all saying that. The PLPA does make it a much more difficult case for us to prove, but it is not an immunity, right? It still allows for the possibility of liability, and we deserved a chance to amend our complaint if it did not, in fact, state a valid complaint under Twombly and Iqbal. Just to be clear, I didn't see in your brief, and if it's there, let me know, in your opening brief that you're challenging in this court the constitutionality of the Texas statute. Is that correct? No, we are not challenging the constitutionality of the Texas statute. Again, I thank the court for its time and its many questions. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The court will take this matter under advisement.